You're listening to That Jesus Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to That Jesus Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Titus Kipfer. How's it going, sir? It's going good. Thank you so much for informing them what podcast they're listening to. Yeah, we've had this discussion before. Yeah, so I got my uh, first Moderna shot. Nice. It, it was it was an interesting experience. So I have shellfish reaction, and so you know you have to wait in the parking lot thirty minutes if you have any kind of allergic reaction to see if you keel over and die. Which yep. spoiler alert, I did not. But I was sitting in the parking lot reading the news about India and just the devastating effects of this current spike in India and how you know they don't have access to enough oxygen and and ventilators and vaccines and just thinking about like just the fact that because i was born in this country i'm able to get this vaccination so early and it just really isn't fair but it was kind of a surreal experience and i i also thought of a prank um (laughs) that i wanted to do on my wife because she's still a little bit vaccine hesitant she hasn't gotten hers yet um, she's waiting to see uh, if people start dropping like flies for a while, I guess. So I, I wanted to do this prank on her. I, I didn't because I value my marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, but if someone's listening who who either values their marriage less or has a very chill spouse, I would suggest doing this um, if your spouse is vaccine hesitant. So what <laughs> I was going to do is the day after I got my vaccination, like I think she left and went something and, and came back. I was going to be like laying on the floor, like just acting like I was in complete agony mm-hmm. and and then be like, you know, I need to call the Gordonsville pharmacy, tell them I'm having just a horrible reaction and then act like I call them and, and be like, yeah, can you can you come uh, like Brian Regan says, hey, can you come get me? Are you familiar with that reference? Brian Regan? Anyways. <laughs> So I, I was going to do that and, and, and uh, tell them, you know, and, and then tell my wife that, yeah, they're going to bring some kind of treatment to our house and then like get a couple friends that my wife doesn't know to show up in a, like black, all black outfits and like shades and everything and guns and come in and be like, you know, Mrs. Kipfer, you need to, uh, you cannot tell anybody about this. Um, Titus is experiencing something fairly common, but the public cannot find out about it. And then, like, try to put on some kind of tracking device on her and, like, get it all on a hidden camera for, like, 45 minutes and then tell her that I was playing the prank on her. So if anyone's listening, um, I I would highly suggest that. I guess I'm sitting here thinking, like, cool story, but you say you value your marriage and you still told the story about your where your mind goes so you know as a man thinketh in his heart I, i'm really not sure if you shot yourself in the foot it's kind of like jesus said lusting is committing adultery in your heart i don't know if fantasizing about that is doing it in my heart and, and therefore yours is bad but it was it was a wonderful experience just thinking about it wow you have a rich inner life titus i really appreciate the depth of your intellectual thought life thank you i try well I don't know if that was worth listening to, but I trust what we have going on this evening is worth listening to. Um, who do we have on tonight, Titus? We are joined by our mutual friend who I've never met in person, but I think you have, uh, Abram Martin. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Abram. Glad to be here. Yeah, Abram is from the 
uh, not very mediocre state of Texas, <laughs> and <laughs> and the he's, nation, he's much the nation of Texas. He's yeah. much taller in real life than he is on Zoom. I don't know why you keep saying Are you that, tall, Drew. Abram? I'm not that tall. I don't T- think I am, but I'm I'm five foot Did eleven or six hobbit? foot. I'm like five foot eleven or six yeah, foot. Yeah, moving so. on. I, I would yeah. say maybe half of my eighth graders are taller than me, so I don't even know how tall you are, Drew, because I only saw you in real life when I was sixteen, so I guess you're real shorty, huh? <laughs> What are we actually supposed to be talking with Mr. Martin about tonight? We're talking to Abram about same-sex attraction and the LG part of LGBTQ. IA Um, plus. Yes. (laughs) So, uh, Abram, well, I'm going to let you, Abram, share with us how you identify um, and maybe just share a little bit of your story with same-sex attraction and um, where that brings you to now. Yeah, yeah, that's glad to be here and glad to be sharing on this topic. I mean, it's uh, it's something, it's a conversation that needs to be had. Uh, it's definitely being had in the culture, and I think Christians for a long time we didn't want to, we didn't really want to talk about it, but we're now being kind of forced to. So for myself, I grew up, you know, in in a Mennonite community, uh, fairly conservative. Uh, we drove horse and buggy. Um, it was what it's called the old order Mennonites. And from the, as young as I could remember, I, you know, I had an, a, my attractions were towards boys. It was, it was something that probably first started thinking about it around age eight or nine. And, um, I really didn't think twice about it because most of my friends at that age, uh, you know, before the boys go through puberty, most, most of them think girls are gross. And so it wasn't really a big deal until my friends started going through puberty and they started talking about girls in a in a more positive light, and um, that I realized that 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 was different for me. And um, and then so I I kind of I mean it wasn't really something that I don't know when I first even knew that there was such a thing as gay or that that was something that actually like. Yeah, that that was actually something that that culture or society was dealing with because we, you know, you're pretty sheltered in something like that, and so I really didn't have language to put to it until probably later, in, uh, quite a bit later in my life. But anyway, I think around 14 or so is when I first uh, discovered pornography. Um, I found a magazine besides the beside the road. Um, my my parents were fairly vigilant about what came into the home. I mean, we were old order Mennonites, so there was no no movies whatsoever. No, um, you know, they 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 sheltered, they guarded the the books and magazines that came into the home. And and you know, I, I'm not faulting them for that at all. But it was I was able to find a magazine beside the road, and which is any you know any parent's worst nightmare. And um, and anyway, so I noticed as as I was paging through that magazine that, and it was a pretty, it was a pretty raunchy magazine. It wasn't just Playboy. Um, I don't know what the name of it was, but it was pretty raunchy. And, and, um, and I noticed that I was drawn more towards the guys and that's what kind of, yeah, awakened me. And, um, so then as I, yeah, 
I that I don't I don't know. I had that magazine for a, a couple weeks or whatever, and I had hit I had it hid somewhere, and some at some point it just disappeared, and I'm not sure exactly what happened. If Dad found it and destroyed it and never said anything to me, I'm not sure what exactly happened there, but it it disappeared, and uh, for a the while there, yeah, it probably was it. The Lord yeah, but obliterated whatever 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 happened. It was. It wasn't, you know, I knew it was wrong. I felt guilty about it. But then maybe a year or so later, I got my first cell phone, um, which I wasn't supposed to have. We weren't supposed to have cell phones. And some of my friends had cell phones. And I had because got a little bit of... Because you were old order Mennonite, right? We were old order Mennonite, yeah. So we, yeah. They're, they're, they don't allow cell phones. But some of my friends had or some... Or really anything. Or, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And uh, so anyway, I got my phone... And um, it didn't take me long to realize that what I saw in that magazine could also be found on on the phone. And so I was pretty quickly uh, looking at pornography on the phone. And uh, that led into, uh, yeah, that was the start of my porn addiction. And, you know, my dad found my phone a couple times, smashed it. I would get a little bit of cash somewhere and buy another one. And uh, so that kind of set a trend. Um, and going into my teen years, uh, or my later teen years where, um, eventually lot, you know, my friends, we would send fairly, uh, yeah, we'd send porn back and forth. It was something that we kind of knew the other, you know, it wasn't, we didn't talk about it, but we kind of, you know, we kind of knew the other guys were looking at stuff too. And we'd send kind of raunchy pictures back and forth. And eventually, with one guy, it it led to us actually um, basically sexting and figuring out that, um, yeah, we want to meet up and and uh, take things farther. And so I did, did in my later teens, engage in uh, same-sex sexual activity uh, for probably a period, over a period of, you know, two, three years, uh, going into my um, late teens. uh, And, yeah. So, so at that point, I was still old order that whole time. Yeah, go ahead, Drew. Did you find that, um, like, there were a lot of other guys in the old order community that that were either same sex attracted or open to same sex behavior? I don't know. I mean, there was definitely a lot of joking and stuff going on. Um, I never. Mm-hmm. It was only one individual that I ever actually had anything happen with. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know on that. I, I, there definitely was a lot of joking. There definitely was, I think some curiosity on, on certain guys, you know, for, um, that I think it wouldn't have been something they would have just completely, uh, been, um, repulsed by, but I don't know, sure. you know, I don't know exactly. Like, I don't think it's any more prevalent there. I do think something that, that definitely leads into it is, you know, there was a lot of um, separation. Like you just, even in the teen years, there's not a lot of um, conversation to be had with the opposite sex. Uh, you're kind of kept pretty far apart. And so I think that does kind of lend itself to when there is curiosity, when there is no one to have those conversations with, there's no way to sort of think through it. And you have that curiosity that it's going to be your avenue of kind of, yeah, searching out that curiosity is, is going to lead to more same sex, uh, things, but I don't, I don't know that that's, 
uh, any worse than it is anywhere else. Yeah, for me, same-sex interaction, sexual behavior, it was more of an opportunity than mm-hmm. than actual like profound desire that way. But for you, it was it was more that's what that's what your fundamental sexual desire was toward. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's the distinction I was trying to make is that for some of the guys, it would have been more just an opportunity thing. And I don't, you know, I haven't talked since with the guy that I did things with. And as far as I know, I mean, he went on to, yeah. Um, as far as I know, you know, he dated a lot of girls after and, um, things like that. So I don't know that for him, I think maybe for him, it was more of just an opportunity thing. Um, and for myself, I I don't really ever call it a relationship because it wasn't really a re- I mean, it wasn't really a relationship. Um, it wasn't like I sure. I don't know for myself that there was a a lot of emotional attachment because I never had any parameters of oh someday we're gonna move off together and like come out and live together and marry each other like that was never that was not something that was in my radar at all. So. As far as I don't, mm-hmm. I even have a problem calling it a relationship because it really was there wasn't a lot of emotional attachment. I think on either side, um, it was more of just we had desires and we were so acting you're on not those old desires. Order Mennonite. Yeah, so you're not old order Mennonite or married to a man right now. So what what happened? <laughs> yeah, so then uh, I got into my early tw- or twenties. Actually, I became of age at twenty, and that summer. After my birthday, I really, I had never really thought of leaving the old orders. It really wasn't something that I had thought about that hard. Um, And it wasn't something that, you know, from my 16th birthday, I was like, the day I turn of age, I am getting a car. Like, that was not my (laughs) mentality at all. And uh, I just got tired of riding my bicycle, I think. Um, Got tired. (laughs) I was like, this is silly. Why can I ride in a car. I could pay someone else to drive me somewhere, but I can't drive it myself. This is kind of silly. And uh, I just decided... And I think there was also some spiritual things going on. So some of it was just, I got tired of the rules. I got tired of the restrictions. But there was also some spiritual things going on where I was working with some some uh, beachy... Uh, yeah, some people that attended or were members of the beachy church. And I noticed that one of the things I, th- I noticed there was that they had convictions that they stood by whether someone was looking or not. You know, I was used to when the bishop or the parents weren't looking, you kind of spoke however you wanted to. You kind of did what you wanted to. And these men, it didn't matter where they were, you know, if they were in another state, they had convictions that they stood by when it came to language, when it came mm-hmm. to you know, what, what we watched in the, you know, we did a lot of overnight trips, um, with, uh, with the construction crew I was on. And so when we stayed overnight, they had, they had convictions about what they watched on TV or whether they even watched TV. And that for me, I I noticed that and I realized they have something I don't have. And these young men have something that I don't have. And so I just, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, you know, one day I was like, I, my dad, I had not gone to the Joe Winger church for probably three Sundays in a row. And my dad was, he, he, that morning he, he lectured, or it was, yeah, the, the one Sunday, yeah, I had skipped out on church and he came home and he lectured me and he said, next Sunday you're going to church. 
And that week, I, for some, yeah, I talked to one of them. I said, "Hey, can I go with you to church?" And I remember it was thinking back now. It was it. I could have done it a lot better and made it a lot easier on my parents. But anyway, my dad comes home from Sunday after church, and he is not happy because he knew I wasn't in church, or he thought I wasn't in church. And he asked me, "Where were you?" And I said, or he's like, "Why weren't you in church?" And I said, "I was in church." And he's like, where? And then I, I, you know, I said, oh, I was at the beachy church. And yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't what he had meant by going to church. And, uh, it was not a, it was not a fun afternoon for both of us. And, you know, looking back, it's something I could have probably, I could have probably brought it up to them beforehand and said, Hey, you know, they, I'm going with them to church. I'm just trying it out, you know, but I didn't, I just kind of dropped the bombshell on them. And that, yeah, I was like, I really liked it. I really liked what I saw there at the Beachy Church. I saw they had something I didn't have. And this isn't really a diss on the old older church. I mean, it kind of is. But for myself, like, I just saw there was something different there. And yeah. so then I started attending there, got a vehicle, started driving. And then with work things, I ended up moving to Texas and uh, a couple months later. So, um, yeah, I got my vehicle, I think, in October and moved so to Texas So at this point, would March. you have said, at this point, would you say that you had a, a relationship with Jesus as, as a disciple, or did that come later? For me, it, it came kind of gradual. I, I don't know that I, I, in my early teens, I struggled very much with, um, with fear, like anxiety around I, I had a lot of fear about I'm going to die during the night and I'm going to wake up and, and I'm going to be in hell. And so I had I had a lot of that anxiety. And I think that's something that's fairly common with young people, especially in their, you know, kind of the, the early teen stage. Sure. That can that's a big, big thing. And I knew I wasn't living right. Like I knew there was things that that I that I was doing wrong. But and so I would sometimes to appease myself during the night, like I. Yeah, I knew I had read somewhere about the sinner's prayer, and our church didn't believe in the sinner's prayer. My mom actually hid those uh, tracks from us because they don't believe in the sinner's prayer. Those people believe once saved, always saved. We don't believe that here, and that's what they're teaching with the sinner's prayer. But I knew that. I had read that sinner's prayer because I read everything, every single thing that had words on it, I read that came into my house, including <laughs> the shampoo bottles. <laughs> and uh and the, and the cereal Quality boxes and, there. <laughs> and uh so i had read that and i had i had kind of knew what the sinner's prayer was and so i had prayed that a number of times and and i think for me like i kind of credit that as as a beginning of a spiritual journey even though there wasn't a whole lot of fruit for many years but i i do kind of credit that as a beginning but then, and when I started, yeah, we're very pro sinners prayer here. So, <laughs> so go go that. <laughs> and uh, then I would say that when I started attending the Beachy Church, like again, there was something happening there. There was I, I kind of was, but I was still in the mentality of I need to start living right more than mm-hmm. you know, I need to have a relationship with God. Like it was, it was still really much a focus on well, if I can get to living right, then I'll be fine. Like and and it was still a lot in that mentality. And then it wasn't, yeah, when I was down here at the beachy church, they had revival meetings and, um, I started, I started 
hearing more about having a relationship with, with Christ and started going more in that direction. But for a number of years, I still, I still had this uh, addiction that, you know, I, I would, I was reading my Bible more. I was doing a lot of things. I, I, in a lot of ways, I was really pursuing a relationship with Christ, but I had this addiction that for for my, for me, I just didn't feel like I could talk to anyone about it because I had I was I feared rejection. I was in a different state. I was surrounded by people I didn't grow up with, and I just feared that if I if I say anything about what I'm struggling with, they're all going to reject me, and what am I going to be left with? You know, and so- were you worried about them rejecting you because? It was same-sex pornography that you were addicted to, or just pornography in general, or something else? Oh, I had no idea that I would ever say that, you know, what kind of pornography. And I was really hoping they wouldn't ask. Um, and, and when I did first confess it, you know, after struggling for a couple of years, and, and reading a lot on it, and trying, you know, all the, every, all the self-help books tell you to read your Bible more. And, and, you know, I'd try some of those things, but I was really stuck. And so then I did finally confess it to my pastor and, um, then, but I never said anything about what kind of pornography. I never said anything about the same sex attraction. And at that point for myself, like I was, I was in the mode of trying to convince myself that that's all in my past because I wasn't engaging in like, yes, that was the pornography I was looking at, but I wasn't engaging in that activity anymore. That part was in my past. Sure. And so I was trying to convince myself that, that, you know, I'm, I'm in the, I'm ex gay. Like that was the big thing for me was I'm, I'm ex, this is in my past. I don't experience those attractions anymore. Yes. I might still be uh, addicted to pornography, but you know, I was in a lot of ways I was lying to myself. I was kind of trying to speak my heterosexuality into existence and uh, that wasn't working at all. And so, <laughs> um, Name you know, and claim it, just, it, brother. Name and claim it. Yeah, exactly. I was I was not charismatic, but I was doing the name and claiming for sure. And in that area anyway. And that and of course my pornography addiction. Um, if only name it claim it worked. It'd be I mean, all the porn addicts would just we'd just name it, claim it, and, and we'd be free. Um But anyway, so I talked to him about it and, and they, they started it was that started a journey of of um trying to walk, you know, a journey of being more open about my addictions. And that was a big, uh, you know, they didn't reject me. They didn't um, sit me down and, and say, well, we're going to have to put you on proving. It, it was, they were really gracious and they were really loving. And that really started, it started in the back of my mind kind of going, well, maybe, maybe this is something that at some time I can share with someone about you know, the deepest struggles that I have, the deepest um, attractions, desires that I have. Maybe this is something that isn't always going to be just my secret. And of course, you know, the, the secret of the other guy that I engaged with. But, um, you know, it wasn't just our little secret. It was something that, that I could maybe someday share. And so that that went on. And, I you know, I listened to a lot of things. I read a lot of books. But it wasn't then I did finally tell my uh, tell a couple people, at least one or two people. But I very much couched it in this ex-gay language like this was in my past. This happened in my teen years. And, and I don't you know, those that's all in my past. I, I tried to really stress that because I really was afraid that they would 
reject me. And, you know, one of the biggest things when you're facing addiction, sexual addiction or anything like that, like the biggest thing you need in recovery is relationships. You need strong relationships with, with godly men. And I feared most of all that I would face rejection. And so that was why, what kept me that secret, what kept me, yeah, they're making it a secret for so long. And, um, it kept me trapped for so long because I just felt like I could never share that and I would, or I would be rejected and they were very gracious again. And that, that started, um, being, yeah, it started me thinking, okay, you know, maybe, maybe I won't get rejected whenever, you know, I confess something like this. And so that's really been kind of my journey since then has been more, um, get coming to the realization that maybe this is um an, an attraction this is an experience something i'm going to experience the rest of my life it doesn't have to define my life um lust is wrong whether it's towards men or women and so i need to continue fighting against lust i need to continue trying to break the addiction of, of pornography but i can be i i don't have to keep lying to myself that that this is all in my past. Um, This is something that I continually am going to be wrestling with. And, you know, I think being open with that has, has helped a lot more being more open. And it's also, it's also kind of helped with coming to grips of being celibate the rest of my life, you know, and and it's, those things aren't easy, but now that people know a little bit more, you know, I don't get the question as much, Oh, why aren't you married yet? Because people kind of, I mean, they kind of know now, the ones that know me very closely, like they know, oh, you know, that's not, he, he's committed to being single the rest of his life. Um, and again, I mean, that comes into kind of one of the things we want to talk about is that, you know, the two options are celibacy or a mixed orientation marriage, which is, or, um, and, you know, for myself, I've chosen, chosen celibacy singleness. I, I believe that's a calling God has on my life. Will he ever call me to marriage to a woman? I don't know. And I'm not I'm not sitting here crying my heart out every night because that he hasn't given me that calling yet. Um I'm also not sitting here I'm not also gonna shun it if if I ever do sense that calling. Like I don't wanna I wanna leave that door open, but I don't I don't wanna let that control my life. Like I wanna continue to live my life and live it to the fullest. Uh, have a relationship with Christ, make that first and foremost, make, you know, holiness and, and uh, purity and my relationship with Christ first and foremost in my life. And if marriage comes along um, and I sense that as a calling from him, I, I don't want to, I don't want to shut the door on it, but I also don't, yeah, I don't want to let it control my, control me. You mentioned that celibacy and a mixed orientation marriage are the only two faithful options for for you. And I think that's a given with, with most of our audience, but I do want to talk a little bit about why we believe that's the case. And especially because personally, and, and this is probably because I'm a, a Westerner living in the 21st century, but personally I, I don't understand why uh, God would forbid same-sex marriages. Like, it's not intuitive to me why that would be the case, and maybe you have some insight into that. But a prediction of my worldview as a Christian is that there will be some ethics that God 
um, you know, God lays out for us that we as fallen humans um, in our culturally conditioned setting will disagree with or, or will, you know, it won't come intuitively to us. So I'm, I'm fine with that. And I do believe, you know, that it, it, it is what Scripture teaches. And um, the, the route I've generally gone with this is I've been influenced a lot by Dr. Preston Sprinkle, who we've been having on this series uh, he he doesn't go like immediately to the prohibition passages about homosexuality, you know. He starts with the biblical definition of what marriage is as a positive <laughs> teaching, and you know, people often say, "Oh, Jesus never talked about homosexuality," which is true. He didn't address it directly, but he does talk about marriage um, in the context of teaching about divorce, and you know, he says that. Uh, Man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Preston points out that sex difference is part of the definition of what marriage itself is, according to Jesus' teachings, which of course was a quote from Genesis. And that is the primary reason why same-sex marriages would be prohibited. And N.T. Wright also mentions that you know the, the entire biblical stories about heaven and earth meeting and about you know unity and diversity and 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 tom wright says that he thinks that's one of the primary reasons why marriage is only between a man and a woman is because it's a picture of heaven and earth meeting Mm -hmm. it's a picture of that that glorious you know reunion um so I, i i really like framing it that way and of course the prohibition passages at least in the new testament are are very important as well um, and we could get into those as well, but I, I like framing it more in a positive light rather than using what's what has often been referred to as yeah. those clobber passages to say no, you can't do this, you know. Right, and I think that's where you know a lot of people listening, you know, they're automatically like, oh, well, yeah, of course, you know, marriage is between one man and one woman. But I think I think one of the, some of the things I want to hit on a little bit in that conversation is one of the things that the premise that is very prominent in our culture today, especially our American culture, is is this, and and I'm I'm just quoting from Anne Whitton. Uh, I think she's she uh, writes a lot for the site. Um, uh, I forget now which one it is, but um, same thing. Living term. living out. I think living out's the one that I'm quoting this from. But she wrote for that one that site. And it's a I think it's a site in the UK. Uh, run by Ed Shaw, um, or he's one of the the people that writes for it as well. And she writes that one the premise that that is very prevalent in our culture today is premise one: everyone has the right to express love and experience intimacy. Premise two: sexual relationships are the only context in which to express love and experience intimacy. Premise three: denying the legitimacy of certain whoa, whoa, types whoa, whoa. of. Hang on a minute. She this is this is her premise that no she's that saying this is experience no, no 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 that this is what she's saying is prevalent in the culture <laughs> today okay she she's quoting oh, the okay. culture okay. she's quoting the culture and mm-hmm. and this and this bleeds over into the church like this this premise that is what she's saying yeah premise three is denying the legitimacy of I... certain types of select sexual relationship means denying some some people the right to express love and experience intimacy. And so it's this argument, the culture presents this argument of we, you know, you're denying people the right to experience love, to express love and experience intimacy by denying same-sex marriage. And, and, and 
the the myth there that we have to bust is that sexual relationships is the only way to experience intimacy and express love and that's exactly. just not true and i think i think it comes to the church and i think that's something that the same sex attracted community points out a lot and it, it kind of grinds on some people but it's very true i think we have in a way um in the church we have we have idolized marriage and by default when we idolized when we've idolized marriage it, between a man and a woman we've alienated single people in the church we've alienated people for them that that's not their calling and and we haven't recognized the legitimacy of a legitimacy of a calling to celibacy and singleness and and that and so i think in that sense like when we when we the church has really bought into that as well of the you know the ultimate like yeah you just you know you'll as a single person you'll kind of say well yeah I've, I've been feeling lonely the past week or the past month and the people especially married people kind of give the default answer well you know maybe you need to maybe you need to start looking around for someone to to meet you know to to meet those loneliness needs and they're kind of hinting at well maybe you need to start dating and um it, it, to me that that's yeah, yeah, it's trying to put like a quick patch over over that because then what it also does, it sets marriages up to fail because you have people that enter a marriage thinking that this marriage is going to offer everything. You know, it's going to fulfill them completely. And that doesn't yeah, happen. As if marriage is the savior for relationships right. and for people. Uh, and I have a quote here from Timothy Keller, and he has a great book on marriage. I haven't read everything. I've listened to some of his sermon series on marriage, and they're worth listening to. Um, but he says, Both men and women today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but as a way to reach personal life goals. They are looking for a marriage partner who will fulfill their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires. And that it creates an extreme idealism that in turn leads to a deep pessimism that you will, a deep pessimism that you will never, ever find the right person to marry. And so it comes, you know, they're looking to their spouse to fulfill every, you know, every, all their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires. Well, hopefully they're going to look to their spouse to fill the, fulfill their sexual desires. But all your emotional and spiritual desires, that, that's, a, that's a lot of weight to, and responsibility to put on your spouse. And so then when that doesn't happen in marriages, there's, there's a lot of lonely people in marriages. And in a lot of ways, I would much rather be a lonely single person than a lonely person in a marriage. Because the lonely person in a marriage is also feeling the guilt of, this is not how his marriage is supposed to be. And they don't know how to talk to someone or their spouse, or to talk to their pastor, or to talk to anyone about their loneliness, because, well, this is not what marriage is supposed to be like. I was, I would, you know, no one else is lonely in their marriage. That's what they think. And so it really, it there's just creates another, a lot of problems. Yeah, there's, there's another side to that. And I don't want to get too sidetracked into talking about holy matrimony when we're talking about same-sex attraction, but I think it ties in <clears throat> that if we're looking at marriage to satisfy our sexual desires, we're actually looking at it wrong. Instead, what, what I see in scripture, what I see in my own experience and what I, what I lament that we don't see more in teaching is that, that our sexuality is actually one 
piece, one tool, if you will, that draws us together and helps us as help if you're in a marriage, helps you helps you together. That process of working through intimacy and enjoying each other and growing in that physical intimacy, that's not the end goal of marriage. That's part of the process that gives you a stronger marriage. And when we reverse that, when we look at, when we misinterpret like 1 Corinthians 7 and say, you know, it's better to marry than to burn, therefore the whole point of marriage is so you don't burn anymore, we're, we're getting the beauty of sexuality in a heterosexual marriage backwards. Mm-hmm. And, and we're taking one step further. I would add, that's why I, again, as a, as a male heterosexual guy, have to say that same-sex marriage or, or same-sex relationships is outside of God's will because it's, it's violating, it's missing God's intention for sexuality. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what Tim Keller, Tim Keller does well in kind of the, def, the meaning of... His book is called The Meaning of Marriage, Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God. And I don't, I think he might have some, I'm not sure if they have some other books on marriage more recent. I think one that his wife co-wrote with him. But one of the things he likes to talk about is that, you know, God made men and women different. There's a lot of similarities. There's, you know, we're both humans, but that, and he really talks a lot about how that is, yeah, the the, the picture of marriage, of what the earthly marriage, what we, this the marriage here is not, it's not permanent. It's something that's been given to, it's been given to us, yes, for life, but it, it's it's a picture of the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a picture of Christ as love for the church. And, and, you know, Paul was very clear on that, that the marriage we have here between a man and a woman is only a picture. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a picture of the actual marriage, which is Christ and his bride. And I think that's something for a single people. And that's why I want to touch on celibacy and singleness isn't a curse. Like we, It's a gift that's been given to us. And there's just as marriage has some, has some really good things and has some maybe drawbacks over, you know, singleness is the same way. It's, it's something that can be very beautiful. It's something that, yes, there are some hard things about being single, just as there are hard things about being married. And so celibacy and singleness isn't a curse. It's a gift that's been given to us. And the the truth is, I will, at some point, I, I will be married. Like at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I get to participate, every believer gets to participate in that marriage supper. We're all part of the bride. And I can look forward to that day. And and I think that's something that for the, when, you know, those times when singleness and celibacy looks bleak, uh, that's something we can comfort ourselves in is that, you know, the future in the future, we will all get to celebrate. Those of us who are in Christ all will get to celebrate in that. And, and I think that's something we can look forward to. So that's great, Brother Abram, <laughs> and I really do appreciate it. I I have heard some of my single friends get a bit frustrated when when somebody like me is saying, hey, you just need to embrace the gift of singleness, and you know this is a gift too, and hey, God can use you in wonderful ways if you're a single person, which is all true and biblical, but yeah. they're like, you know, is there a gift receipt with this? Can I return it? <laughs> what are some practical ways in your in again in your your current state what are some practical ways you walk out your celibacy in a god honoring way 
Well, I think the biggest thing is going to be relationships. And I, I don't, you know, I have lots of good friendships and I want to continue to develop and grow those as, as you know, just as part of uh, growing God's kingdom, but also as part of discipleship, as part of being brothers and sisters in Christ. So I think that's definitely one way is is we need to be we need to remember that we're part of the body of Christ and we need to be we need to be cultivating deep spiritual friendships with those of the opposite sex with those of the same sex and you know pursuing those in a God-honoring holy way but I think I think we see a for myself like I look at that with Jesus and his disciples and the the friend, the, the closeness that they experienced was uh, was something that, you know, yes, I think it was fairly common in that culture between a, a teacher and his students. But there was there's a lot of things we look at there and we're like they were really close, and and I think that's something that's a picture of kind of discipleship, mentoring, spiritual friendship that we can look at as as a model and 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 say how can we cultivate these things? And I don't I'm not saying I have a lot of answers here because. In a lot of ways, that's something that in my life I'm still really working towards. Yeah, that's good. I, when I first met Brenda, I told her I wanted to be a celibate because there was something, and she didn't find that very attractive, by the way. Uh, th- there's something that was oddly attractive to me as an aspiring ascetic uh, about it. It's it's In a sense, it's it's like fasting your whole life. Mm. Um and of course, there's the example of, of Paul and Jesus, but even throughout history, you know, the monastic movements that I, I'm excited about and Drew's probably less excited about often, you know, stress celibacy as a way of, of honoring Christ in a, a special way. And I'm not sure that like certain people are given the gift of singleness. I think if you're single, you are given that gift. Like, and, and if you're married, you're given the gift of marriage. And so it's not like certain people are cut out from from birth for it necessarily any more than anyone else, but it really is a, a powerful way to to live your life free from distraction. Paul talks about a married person, you know, caring about how he can please his wife or his, or her husband. An unmarried person has undivided attention and can just go after the kingdom and pursue the mission of God in really powerful ways that the married people cannot. So I just want to bless you in that and encourage you. That's it's it's really a powerful thing and and you're inspiring that you've you know embraced that in that way. Well, I think I think too. I mean, gifts or callings, however we want to phrase it, they they're not something that oh, I have this calling, this is my calling now for the rest of my life. I mean, we we don't use that when we talk about missions. You know, someone feels called to go to missions, but we don't all oh, when they, you know, when they after 3 years say, "Well, we're feeling God calling us back to America." You know, this was a season in our life and he may call us to go back or he may call us to go somewhere else but this was a season in our life we don't all go oh i thought you were called to missions and that meant that calling meant that's what you were going to do the rest of your life and i think singleness i mean marriage of course once you're called to marriage that's permanent but singleness we we don't i think we don't have to look at it as okay i i've been called to singleness and you know this is my single focus now for the the rest of my life and and I'm never going to think about marriage. No pun intended. <laughs> Drew, you're muted. Sorry. Do you think it's possible though that um 
for a person, maybe they are same-sex attracted or maybe they're in their 30s or 40s and they're not married, is is there a process that they can find some freedom and joy in claiming their singleness and saying, you know, maybe this is coming up, but I'm not pursuing marriage mm-hmm. anymore. I hear a lot of young people, whether they intend to or not, um, there, there's a sort of expectation I'm going to be married. Young, <laughs> some of my some of my friends um, in their in their early twenties, their whole framework is I'm not going to get married, which is kind of their way of saying I want to get married, but yeah. I don't want to sound too eager. So, is there some value in coming to a place of letting it go? I, I think there is, and again, that's for every single person, and and that's really I think what's helped me come to a more stable place in my life is is just kind of. Re- telling myself that I very likely will be single the rest of my life. And so I need to learn how to cultivate friendships. I need to learn how to to find intimacy, non-sexual intimacy in my life and and cultivate Mm -hmm. those friendships. And and so if I'm always, I need to do that regardless. But if I'm always holding out this kind of, well, you know, there's always the possibility of marriage, then maybe I won't be focused on that as much as I should be. And so for me, it's been helpful, but I wouldn't, I'd, I'd really hate to project that onto every individual that struggles with same-sex attraction, because I think, you know, mixed orientation marriages do work and they can work. And there's, I, I'm not, you know, well-versed into talking on that, but I think there are, there are books, there are podcasts that you can listen to that talk extensively about that and how it works and, and the nuances of that. And I think, you know, and, I, and that's, there's probably some people listening to this that are in a marriage right now and are same-sex attracted, and they've never talked about it to anyone, maybe not even their spouse. And I kind of want to say to them, you know, maybe, maybe the time has come to, to, you know, to tell your spouse. Maybe the time has come to talk to a counselor, not that you're ever going to leave that marriage you're in now, but maybe it'll help, it'll help your, improve your marriage that you're in. If you can just be not saying you have to stand up, you know, and proclaim it to your church next Sunday, uh, uh, whatever that you know that this is your pastor, you struggle with this currently or whatever, but that maybe it'll help you work through some things if you can just be a little bit more open to the people that you're very close to that you really trust. Um, that can be helpful, and and I don't think you know a lot of times I think a spouse, it might be a shock to them at first, but I think in a lot of ways it's going to be. It's going to help them understand you better, and it's probably going to, in the in the long run, through counseling, improve your marriage if you can just be honest with them and say, "Hey, this is this is part of my past. This is what I've struggled with, um, or this is what I've experienced." It seems like that. It seems like fundamentally moving toward honesty about who we are and what we struggle with is always the best policy. At the same mm-hmm. time. Dropping that on your spouse after you've been married for however many years, it really does seem like something you probably do want a, a a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ to walk with you in and to give you a lot of prayer and support and wisdom counseling yeah. so that you don't just blow everything up. Unfortunately, when we don't enter in that process, and I, I know firsthand situations where there were same-sex activity mm-hmm. when somebody was married, and then it comes up out of the blue and it's like, what in the world? And it's because yeah. of the secrecy and the stigma. Mm-hmm. So can we... Can we move to the, you know, the really kind of hot button question of not same sex attraction, but identifying 
as gay or identifying, I mean, even the idea for, for some people of saying, I don't identify as heterosexual mm-hmm. or I don't feel sexual attraction. There's this idea then, and I have heard it from you know popular um, speakers and podcasters, this is just wrong. You have to reject this this deviant desire, and even the desire is out of line, and we must, you know, crucify this and start, like you said, kind of cure the gay away and teach yourself to be heterosexual. Can you can you talk about about maybe that whether it's a myth or there's some truth there? Or, well, I think I think to me when you're taught about desire, some it's really hard to define the difference between desire and lust. Because if I'm desiring a man um, sexually, that's that's lust. I mean, by definition, that's kind of lust. So I, I for myself, I I would I use the term attraction. Like I experience same sex attraction. I struggle with same sex lust, and same sex sexual activity is part of my past. That's in my past. I you know that's not something. That's not a bridge. I I hopefully I'll never cross again. Um, the lust is, though it's a, it's something that yes, I'm actively striving against. It is something that is a, is a temptation that I have to daily, you know, take to the cross. It's something that, yeah, there's days that I don't struggle with it nearly as much, and then there's weeks that it's really bad. And a lot of times, those are the weeks where I'm also being, you know, battling depression. I'm battling loneliness, and and so, you know, the during that week, the 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 temptation to lust is increase, you know, can increase quite a bit, and so, you know, that's where I I better prefer the term attraction, because desire to a lot of people, well, they automatically hear lust, and and I so I think and I think lust is sinful, so I think that to me, it, it's kind of the same thing of, you know, I think that I would say the same thing to a straight man, you know, or a straight young man that's single, mm-hmm. um, he's probably going to be attracted to certain girls. He's going to find them beautiful. He's going to, you know, they're going to catch his eye more than other girls. But when he starts that, he lets that attraction bleed over into desire and and that desire turns into lust of where he's actually fantasizing about them sexually. That's when it, that's when it's a sin. That's when that attraction turns into sin. And and that's and that's where I I mean to me it's the exact same thing for a gay person. So the attractions that I feel, um, there's a possibility, and I I'm never gonna say that it's not it's impossible because I I you know nothing is impossible for God. I'm not saying it's an impossibility that those attraction that someday I'll become heterosexual that God will take away my same uh, attraction to the same sex and will give me desires exclusively for the the opposite sex and or attractions for the opposite sex but i i do think for myself that's not been my experience and so when that's i think to me a lot of this conversation comes around conversation around words and definitions of words and people talking past each other with these definitions and and i think that's why a lot of this i you know there needs to be a conversation around that. As far as the identity taking the, the label gay, I, I do, I am uncomfortable with taking that for myself. Um, I'd be uncomfortable recommending it to someone else, but I'm also not comfortable with categorizing those people as on the slippery slope to um, 
the people that do identify as gay Christian. I'm not, you know, they, they identify as gay, celibate gay Christians that are committed to a traditional sexual ethic. To, to categorize them as this on the slippery slope to sexual immorality and gay marriage, I, I'm also uncomfortable with that definition. Uh, maybe some of y'all have some comments on that, but. Why are you uncomfortable identifying as gay? <clears throat> I think for myself, it has to do with, um, one, it has to do with the, the space I live in, which is conservative Christianity. And if I'd use the term celibate gay Christian, it would send up a lot of red flags for people because they're not familiar with that term or, for, you know, it just, to me, that language, I have, you have to be aware of your audience. And, I, and that's what I hear a lot of people saying that do identify as that, that they recognize that a certain audience is going to really be turned off by that. And, but also I think what we need to remember is that for a lot of people that maybe years and years and years have been struggling with same-sex attraction, they've gone in and out you know, of the church, the term um, same-sex attraction, the term ex-gay, um, the term homosexual, um, that has really created a stigma around it of people of the ex-gay community, of people of conversion yeah. therapy, and people's very bad, horrific experiences with conversion therapy, um, of being rejected by people. And so it for a lot of people it brings up a lot of these um narratives that the gay community um has bought about Christianity and a lot of those narratives unfortunately are true about you know people being hateful people being derogatory people making fun of other people um hateful comments and and all of those things mocking um and and they see all of that especially online it's very pervasive online and they see that and and it just builds their narrative of Christians as hateful bigots, and and I think for a lot of people that's their main motivation for identifying as a celibate gay Christian is to try to break down some of those stereotypes, and that's why for me I have a hard time categoric categorically rejecting them because of their choice to use that language. Sure. So if if you didn't have the audience, or, or if you didn't have this, the cultural surroundings that you have now, do you think you would adopt that term? I mean, we don't need to push this too far, but... There's a possibility. I don't... I'd have to really think through it. I'd have to be very careful. I'm honestly not saying that not right now... Not that it now, really matters, but... <laughs> I, I'm honestly saying, like, right now, even, you know, let's, let's say I was talking to someone, or to a group of people who I knew had been really hurt by the ex-gay community. I, I, to me, I would, there's a possibility I would even use that term there. Um, but I, I'd probably want to be very careful, um, how I do that. I'd, I'd want to, you know, probably think through that quite a bit more on the issue of identity. And to me, one of the reasons I don't really like it for myself is generally when you use the term, you have to make so many caveats, you know, you have to if you say gay Christian, well, then you have to say, well, I'm also celibate. And, you know, there's so many caveats you have to make that eventually I'm like, okay, is it really helpful to say gay Christian or is it helpful to use something else? And that's where some people have adopted the sides terminology. Um, and, and it's something that inside this community, inside this conversation that, you know, side A is Christian men or Christian people who 
who believe side A is uh, they disagree with Christian tradition affirming a gay identity and seeking sexual expression in a gay marriage as faithful to a Christian ethic. So they think two people can get married, and and that's a, you know a faithful picture of marriage uh, in the in the Christianity. Uh, side B affirm the same sexual tr- Christian addition, affirm the Christian addition, see sexual expression to gay marriage as wrong, but incorporate a gay identity under the Lordship of Christ through celibacy and other forms of chastity. And then side Y, like side B, but they reject the identity with a term LGBTQI, prefers not to identify as gay, but more likely to see the, use the term same-sex attracted or is reluctant to see sexual orientation as a category or identity of personhood. And then their side X uh, claims to either no longer experience same-sex attraction or to be ex-gay, and to have been freed by the process of sanctification. And so that's kind of, they've adopted the sides terminology, and it, it it's kind of helpful, um, I, you know, for myself. Yeah, I would identify a side Y. Um, I, have, I have a lot of respect for side B Christians, um, the side A, I would disagree with them on the definition of marriage, and you know, I would disagree with them on same-sex sexual activity being a sin, regardless of whether that's in a marriage or not. Um, and then side X, that's not so my for experience. You it's a... Yeah. And side X, like yeah, I don't want to. So for I you, the yeah. sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Drew. For you, it's a. Uh... A pragmatic choice. It's mm-hmm. rather than kind of look at language as this, you know, tyrannical overlord, let's use language in the appropriate context to communicate best. How do I best glorify God through the word choices I'm making? Mm-hmm. Do you do you find any I, I don't want to make this uncomfortable, but I, I've I was exposed. There was a bit of a controversy a couple years ago over the revoice conference Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the leaders i think his first name was nate and he was in a he was married but identified as gay um and there was a lot of pushback married to a woman very solidly yeah uh exactly they were very strongly side b um and what i heard was there's something fundamentally twisted about same-sex attraction that's not twisted in heterosexual attraction and so I just I'm I'm gonna push just one more time. Do you have do you see any legitimacy to that? Or um does that just seem problematic? I think as much, you know, as much as uh these same conservatives want to complain about cultural Marxism coming into the church, I think they they put on some kind of a Marxist lens when they, they want to critique language because I think for me, I need like I'll go listen to these people and what they mean when they say gay Christian, what they, you know, what the side B people are actually saying when they take that identity label and they're how often they will continue to, to say my for first and foremost identity comes in Christ. And this is a label that I choose to use to identify with those with oppression that has happened in the past. And I think most people today would, would say, yes, gay people have been oppressed. I mean, you know, in, in history, there's been just there. There's been a lot of uh, abuse and um, a lot of things that have that was done to gay people. Um, perse- there, even today, there's nations where it's the death penalty for for same sex people, and so they say I'm identifying with that 
Like I'm identifying with those people, though I choose not to express that in, in sexual relationships. This is a, an identity or a label that I've took. It's not their identity. It's the, a label they've chosen to adopt, uh, to identify with that. And it's not their primary identity. It's not their first and foremost identity. And so for me, like I take them at their word. If they say this is not my first and foremost identity, I don't think they're making it into that by adopting that label. And, you know, somebody wants to take their cultural Marxist lens and critique language and read something into, read that into something people aren't saying that I guess that goes with them. Yeah, one of the arguments I've heard from the side X side, I suppose, those who are opposed to even someone identifying as gay or saying that my same-sex attraction mm-hmm. isn't in and of itself a sin, one of the arguments I hear is why why would you even identify with a sexual attraction? What's the point? And it's kind of like, you know, three fingers pointing back at you, dude, because so much of hi- historically in the past mm-hmm. hundred years, so much of people's identity is about being married or being unmarried. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, well, you created this framework of, th- you know, this binary between you're married or unmarried and and so if you're going to create that, we need to create some space in this. So if you're going to give, it's not so much that you're taking on an identity for yourself. It's that you don't want people to impose an identity upon you. Well, I think, I think, you know, some people would, those people would also probably take offense to my, my choice of language as to, I experience same sex attraction, but I struggle with, you know, or I struggle against desire or lust. Because I've, you know, we, they like to refer, you know, they say, well, it's okay if you still experience some attraction, but you have to couch it in the tank language of struggle. Like that's something I'm always going to reject. And for me, that has always just led to one, it has led to this idea of my testimony is something that I share that happened in the past. This is how God has redeemed me from this and completely freed me. And this is now all in my past. And I hear a lot, a lot of conversations of people that are, that used to be ex-gay that now say they're side B and their experience was that that whole thing of this is a moment in the past where this stopped, then it just leads to a lot of secrecy and a lot of shame and a lot of secret sexual sin that's ongoing because they're they're still trying to tell their testimony as this was, there was an event in the past where God took that away from me. And they know deep down that's not what happened because they're still experiencing at least in part of that. And so it's really hard to just be honest. And that's for me why I, you know, I'm not saying there aren't people that have, and, and I'd love for, I'd love to meet some of those that say, this is completely in my past. I don't, ever experienced, you know, God, that was part of grace. He, he redeemed me from that. And that's, you know, that's now history. I don't experience that attraction anymore. I'd love to meet some of those. I'd love to talk to them. Um, and I'm not going to sit there and say, you're wrong. I think you're lying. Um, I just, my thing is that hasn't been my experience. If in the process of sanctification and, you know, I hope that continues for me, um, for, you know, in the process of sanctification, if God chooses to remove that, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit there and, and yell at him and say, oh, you know, I, you took a part of me away. No, I, I'm going to rejoice in that, but I'm also not going to sit here and feel sorry for myself if he doesn't. 
Um, my battle is against lust. It's not against these attractions. Yeah, well said. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately, if we're going to be Jesus followers, it's far more important that we show love through our language choices and through our attitudes than than develop some complex theological rigidity around the words we choose. Like, let's err on the side of loving with what we say rather than, yeah, uh, linguistic orthodoxy. And and one of the questions that people like to ask today is, you know, well, can Christians be gay? Like, that's what they'll like to ask the celebrities that. They'll like to ask, you know, Christian musicians that are famous or, you know, pastors. They'll get them on a YouTube channel and go, well, can Christians be gay? And, and like, to me, you have you have to backpedal and say, okay, what do you mean by gay? Do you mean engaging in same-sex sexual activity? But that, for a lot of gay people, that's not, that's only a part of the identity as gay. Like, it's also, I mean, today everyone's taken all kinds of labels for themselves. And to identify as part of a group or a community, and for a lot of gay people, that's what it is. It's a lot more of a part of a community than it is just you know i'm looking i'm always looking for same sex sexual activity and i'm being promiscuous and and for a lot of people that's not their experience um there's there's a lot of people that identify as gay that for years and they're not christian or they're not you know they they would be open to marriage but they're not out there being promiscuous and that's one of the the myths i kind of wanted to bust was you know all gays are promiscuous and that's just not true there's definitely a gay kid you know, the gay culture, the gay lifestyle um, that in, in certain segments, that, that is part of it, where they're always going from one relationship to the next, one sexual activity to the next, uh, trying to find fulfillment, trying to find happiness. And of course, it's not happening for them. And but they're continuing to seek that out, thinking this one will finally make me happy. Not unlike a lot of heterosexual people that we all, you know, probably run into where they're going from one relationship to the next sleeping with one girl cheating on you know that girl with another girl like it it, to me i don't know that it's any more prevalent in the gay culture than it is in in uh in heterosexual culture uh outside of christianity that the promiscuity i don't know that it's any more um yeah yeah, well, we should wrap up. We've been going in over an hour here, but I really appreciate everything you shared and especially, you know, opening up about your story. I know some of those things aren't aren't easy to tell people, especially publicly. Um, so thanks can, so much. Can we run through uh, another? Can we not run through really quickly another couple myths I want to bust before we go? Sure, um, go ahead. Okay. Uh, one of the ones I, wor- I want to get at is that, you know, a lot of people will couch it as, as this is something that's caused by outside influences. Uh, by, you know, you had a, a domineering uh, mother and a distant father, or you had, you know, no father in the home, or you were sexually abused, and or you were, you had, you know, all kind. And that, to me, the history of that is very Freudian. Um, Freud, Freud had this weird theory that everyone's born <laughs> bisexual. And some experience in our early childhood swings us one way or the other. And, and so, uh, yes, most Christian counselors wouldn't say that, but they borrow the one point about swinging in it one way or the other. And they say, well, there must have been something in your childhood that happened or, or there was something in your growing up experience 
that made you gay. And that's just not, it's not ever been proven. There's no science or there's no history behind that. It can happen, but there's many people, many young men or men that have been sexually abused as a child that aren't gay. And there's many that um, had all of these things that are supposedly what makes people gay and, and they're, they're as straight as can be. And so I think, you know, if that was not any of my experience, I was never sexually abused. I, my parents weren't, you know, my mom was not domineering. My dad was, um, he was a typical uh, German stoic that never hugged his children, but he wasn't like distant or non-existent. Um, and so that, that's kind of one myth I want to bust. Um, and the other one is, uh, that a lot of people will kind of try to ask. Um, and, and so I want to just go out and say it, you know, one is, uh, well, how can I, as a man avoid being a temptation to you as someone who struggles with same sex attraction? And I think, you know, I, I, that's generally, we can laugh at that question, but it's a true, it's a real question that people have and they're not, they're not sure how to ask it. And I want to say one, you know, it's kind of like what, I think uh, Rosera Butterfield wrote in her book that, you know, someone kind of asked that to her. A woman asked her that, you know, how do I avoid being a temptation for you? And, and she was kind of thought to herself, like, don't flatter yourself. I'd never be into you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, like, we need to remember that, one, you know, gay people have a type, just like uh, just like heterosexual people have a type they're more attracted to. And so, very likely, you're not our type. Uh, that that's probably the first thing. The second thing is we do have self control, and so you know, even if even if you might be the type I'm attracted to, I have self control, and you know, if I lust, that goes with me. That's my responsibility. That's not something I'm going to project on you and say, oh, that person uh, was really nice to me and he hugged me and that caused me to lust. Like, no, that's that's not that's besides the point like if i if i'm starting to fantasize about you know anything sexually that's that's on me that's not something someone else caused um and so that's something i have to deal with personally and so that that's something i just wanted to put out there um another one is uh gay fashion um i hear a lot of you know i i recently someone told me that their preacher preached about how we shouldn't wear skinny jeans because that's something the gay cult you know the gay people wear and <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not for skinny jeans, but that's not the reason at all. Like gay fashion is it's really not any different than other yes, they generally in the gay culture they are more fashionable. They pay attention to that more than other men do. But it's not like they have their own distinct fashion that that, you know, we need to avoid certain things because because that's gay. Um, that's, that's a, that's for teenagers to, you know, that's something teenagers hold, hurl at each other as insults, but that's not something that yeah. needs to be talked about across the pulpit. Like, um, you know, if you want to talk about clothes, talk about clothes, but don't, don't say, well, we, we men need to avoid this because that's what the gays do. Like that, that's not good. That's not good language. Um, I think, yeah, the other, of course, the other one, the other myth real quick is, is the gay gene and born this way. Um, that's something that has not really been proven scientifically that genetically is, you know, something that, that it's something genetically 
Um, I tend to look at it as something that comes out of original sin. Um, and by the original sin, I'm not meaning in the Calvinist term of, of Adam's guilt is all laid on us, but that we're all born with the propensity towards sin. And for some of us, those propensities, those proclivities towards sin is different than others. And that's something that unfortunately is a part of the curse. It's a part of being human after the fall. And that's how I view it. I don't even if I don't spend a lot of time pontificating or analyzing, psychoanalyzing myself as to what caused me to be gay. I'm just I've resigned that it's some it's a part of the fall. It it's not something that was pre pre Eden. It's not something that we're gonna experience in new creation. Um it's something that's a result of the fall of sin entering the world and you know too many uh, the problem that i have with the psychoanalyst part especially is there's parents that have had children that that came out as gay or are in gay relationships and these parents are beating themselves up and they're looking they're combing through that childhood and they're blaming themselves for how their children turned out and that is so heartbreaking and if you know any parent that that is in that situation. Like I want to say to you, you didn't cause that child to be gay. And they're, if they're choosing to live that out in a, in a same sex sexual relationship or a marriage, love them, be clear on where you stand, but first and foremost, love them and accept them as children, as your children. And don't blame yourself. If that's, you know, if that's what happened, I think that's a big one. That was one of the myths. Yeah. That I think it's it's so heartbreaking to see parents that are just they just they they're blaming themselves for that and yeah I hate to see that. Can I throw one more out here? I know we're going long, but and I really appreciate everything you shared, Abram, especially these myths. A myth that I hear over and over again that I think is especially harmful and hurtful is that somehow same sex attracted attraction is linked to something like pedophilia mm. and like, well, I'm not going to have somebody, um, I'm not going to have a, an older, not to call you older Abram, but you know, a 30 year old <laughs> single guy babysit my kids or come over to visit. Cause, cause he's not married and there's something mm. wrong with him. Or, you know, I think she might be a lesbian and so I'm not going to have her over. There's, it, it, it's not scientific. There's nothing in scripture that speaks to that. And like, let's be honest. Um, Married people can be just as creepy as single mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And I really, it, it it breaks my heart when I hear that that idea that, well, somehow if you're same-sex attracted, that means you have some twistedness that you'll mm-hmm. abuse children or something. Yeah. I mean, and again, it's not that gay people or gay men or women haven't abused children. Um, it's not that straight people haven't. And one of the biggest things, I mean, yes, I think some of the best cover for an abuser is a wife and a row of children. Um, And he might be abusing his own children. He might be abusing other people's children. Some of the best, some, and that's the other thing too, I think with people that are in mixed orientation marriages, even just talk to a counselor or, or something they're not, or their pastor about that is, you know, they're afraid, well, what if the pastor thinks I am not fit to be around my children anymore? You know, and because of that, because of that stereotype. And I mean, some of the best the, that comes back to, you know, the whole sexual abuse thing. Some of the best way that you can prevent your children from being abused is to have a, a good working relationship with them, to, to to have the conversations with them, teach them early on about, you know, bad touch, good touch. An abuser that's he's going to be seeking out vulnerable children that he knows 
especially if it's someone seeking out teens, he's going to be looking for teenagers that are not having a good relationship with their parents that he knows aren't talking to their parents or don't have good relationships and are very vulnerable that those are the ones they're going to be manipulating. And so if you as a parent of teens are having those conversations with your teens, that's the best way you can prevent them from being abused. Um, and I think that that's, that's a big one. And, and I think, so, you know, when that comes down to who babysits your children, that that's a something that's a, a choice parents have to make, but to base that on, we think that person's gay or we know, you know, that she might be a lesbian. So we're not going to, I mean, yeah, that's just, it's a stereotype that needs to be, it's a myth that needs to be busted for sure. We need to be skeptical of all people. (laughs) Yeah. I I think we just need to say very clearly that homophobia is a sin. Like it it is. Mm -hmm. And, And to say that, you know, same sex marriage is sinful but but to be homophobic is is just really messed up. And in making you know making fun put of that out there, gay jokes yeah. are not okay. They are not you know making fun of people that are made in the image of God is not is a sin. And and you know growing up, I heard a lot of gay jokes, and honestly, I told a lot of them myself because I would because I didn't want people to think I'm gay. And so if I you know if you, if I pretend if I'm offended at a gay joke, well, that's pretty clear evidence that I'm gay. And so, you know, I, I, I can't say a lot because I said as many of them as, or more than other people did. And that's something even for those, you know, maybe a young teen that's listening to this or an older teen that does hear a lot of gay jokes and is starting to be offended by those. Remember that maybe some of the ones that are saying them the most are actually struggling with that themselves. Not always, but it could be. There's that's There's that possibility. And so I think we need to be you know, we need to show kindness, but at the same time, we need to call it out. And, and you know, if, if someone's saying something that's not nice, especially as an older person, we hear young teenagers make gay jokes, like say, hey, that's not cool. Don't, that We don't do that. And I think that, yeah. you know, generally if an older adult, if an older adult says that, um, I think, and, and it makes people, you know, especially younger people, it makes them think twice. They're like, you're, you're right. That's not very Christian. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Abram. If if someone's listening to, all right, this I think I've covered all my notes. Yeah. You know. Okay. Good. Yeah. If someone is listening to this and is experiencing same sex attraction, um, would it be okay if they'd reach out to you? Like, is that something? Yeah. I mean, to? reach out to me. Reach out to Titus. Reach out to Drew. They're all really nice, loving guys. And you know, I think, um, yeah. Talk. Talk to. Uh, a counselor, talk to a pastor. Um, I think all of those, you know, but yeah, definitely. If, if you, if you don't, if you don't have anyone you can reach out to and definitely try to reach out to one of us, uh, we'll, we'll be glad to direct you get a hold of you. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on all the social media accounts and, um, yeah. So through that, or I am also on the board of kingdom outposts. So you can uh, reach out to kingdom outposts and, and they will, they will, um, they will make sure it gets to me. So, and they will make there sure you to go, get you your contact info. <laughs> oh, all roads lead to Kingdom Outpost. She doesn't listen to podcasts. We'll have to type out this to to get her to read that. Yeah, transcript. Get the transcript. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, this has been 
very helpful to, to hear your journey, Abram. And yeah, thanks just for being an inspiration to all of us. And we will see you all next time. That Jesus Podcast is part of the Kingdom Outpost Podcast Network. For more podcasts, articles, and other resources, go to kingdomoutpost.org.